Take your Bible and turn to the book of Philippians chapter number 2. Philippians chapter, the book of Philippians um, is actually uh, one of what we call the prison epistles. And Paul wrote this from prison. He's writing this book, this letter to a a suffering church who are in the midst of persecution. If you remember Paul's time in Philippi when he was there, he was, in, he was beaten, imprisoned. Um, uh, it was uh, a place that was hostile to the gospel, but there was a church planted there. And this, um, this letter, Paul writes it from prison to this little church in Philippi, and he is encouraging this church um, this church, if you think back to the people who were saved here, it's kind of unique. I don't know if you folks will remember this. I just keep notes, so I remember. Just so happened to be that last time I was here in the Sunday school hour four years ago, I preached from Philippians chapter number one, um, the last few verses. But I am moving into Philippians chapter number two, and I'm actually going to pick up where I left off. I'm sure you'll remember. Um, anyway. <laughs> In the book of Philippi, I mean, in the city of Philippi, um, it's very interesting. Um, we know some of the people who, who are a part of this church. Um, the first Philippian convert, do you remember what her name was? Uh, her, she was, the Bible called her a seller of purple. Remember? What was her name? Lydia. Okay, she was a wealthy lady. Most believe this purple dye she sold. Um, she also, uh, or, or apparently her and, her and her household, so her family, became Christians. Most believe she was a wealthy lady. Then there was, uh, remember who got saved next? It was actually a little slave girl. So low class, little slave girl. Um, she's demon possessed. She's kind of following Paul around. Paul turns and actually casts the demon out of her. But I, I don't think this is just a story of, of, a, of a girl being changed here on this earth. I think it's, it's a story of her being saved. I really want to believe that. And I, 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 we actually find her standing, explaining what has happened to her. She's been changed. And so I believe she's a part of this church. You have this high-class lady, you have this low-class slave girl. Then who gets saved? Middle-class social worker and his whole family, right? The Philippian jailer. You know what God wanted us to know? It's not an accident. God wanted us to know that this was a diverse church. Um, those wealthy people, poor people, middle-class people. Now, this isn't a book that's full of, of, um, of rebuke. Like, uh, sometimes Paul knows how to come in with a pretty heavy hand. Paul knows how to come in and be confrontational. That's not this letter. I mean, the, the, um, the Corinthian letter, the first one especially, is an absolute spanking of a letter. There's carnality, there's immorality, there's division, there's struggle. And Paul comes in heavy, confronting them. Um, the, uh, the, the Galatian letter, it's a theological spanking. They have erred from the truth. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Now, I just want you to know something. That is not this letter. The letter to the Philippians, Paul, in prison, is writing this letter, coming alongside a suffering, persecuted church, and he's putting his arm around them. And if there is... Um, there's, there's a few recurring themes. One of them is, is, is this theme of rejoicing and joy. Um, but then there's another theme that, and that's the one that is thought about the most, really uh, rejoicing in the midst of trials. But I, there's another theme that's in chapter 1, it's in chapter 2, it's again in chapter 4. He calls these people to be unified. 
He calls these people several times to be unified. And, and I want us to look at it. What do you think? What do you think the atmosphere was like in First Baptist Church of Philippi on a Sunday morning? I mean, just think about it. So here you have this lady, Lydia, in a hostile environment. You find her becoming a Christian. I mean, who knows what her business was like after that? Who knows, once her family becomes followers of this Jesus, and who knows, in this Roman colony, Philippi was a Roman colony, um, who knows, maybe, maybe her business really took a hit after people found out that she was now a Christian. Or what do you think life was like for this little slave girl? Do you think her, remember, her, her, her owners used to make money off of her because of her demon possession, but now the demon's gone. What do you think life became like for her? What do you think it was like for this Philippian jailer once he got back to work after becoming a Christian? Folks, these people very likely started to suffer um, some hostility from friends and family. And so what do you think the atmosphere was like on a Sunday morning in First Baptist Church of Philippi? When they all came together. Now, obviously, they wouldn't have met in a nice church like this. And obviously, to tell you the truth, you know, they actually weren't Baptists back then. But they, they all would have come together. What do you think the atmosphere was like in that little house church? We know at one point they were meeting at Lydia's house. Folks, don't you think it was sweet? As that little slave girl would maybe find a way to slip away and sneak down what do you think? Do you think all of a sudden that it mattered who was rich and who was poor in this little newfound family called the church? As this little slave girl would run into the arms of Lydia? Because I want you to know something. There would have been a sweetness in the atmosphere at that little church because there was a newfound family. It's called the church. Now, I want us to look at really the motivation. Paul calls them in chapter number two. This is one of the major passages where he calls them to be unified. And I just want to look real quick. Philippians chapter number two. First, he gives really the motivation for them to be unified. Listen to what he says. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the spirit, if any bowels and mercies, then he says, then fulfill you by joy that ye be like-minded. Now, we'll get to that like-minded in a minute, but that's the unity that he's calling them to. But in verse 1, he gives them really the, the, the motivation for, for being unified. Basically, with a big if-then statement, if all of these things be true, then you've got to be unified. So what does he say? He says, so if there, if there be any consolation in Christ, that word means any encouragement because of Christ. Do you think there was any encouragement in this little newfound body of believers being ostracized perhaps from their family, from their friends. Is there any encouragement now because of Christ and this little community of Christians? You better believe it. Is there, any, is there any comfort of love? Do you think there's any love that they now feel for each other? doesn't matter who's rich, who's poor. He says, is there any fellowship with the Spirit? And this word fellowship is a, is a sweet word. You know, as, as, as Baptists, we think of fellowship, we think of getting together and eating some food together. And I mean, that's all fine and that's all part of it. But this is a much deeper word. It's a word that talks about fellowship and partnership and even, even coming together, especially in a setting like this. And all you have is each other, but it's sweet. 
We have fellowship. I, I, just, I just sent a, a, a text to a dear friend of mine, a pastor who is just going through an, a, an incredible time at his church right now in an inner city setting. It's just so hard. And as I was just going through, he's got all kinds of financial struggles. He's got all kinds of things going on. And I was just talking to him today, and I texted him. I spent some time in prayer for him, and I texted him from Philippians chapter 3. I said, I am praying that you will know Christ and that you will be empowered by the power of his resurrection. And then I said this, and I said that you will have sweet fellowship with Jesus as you live out the fellowship of his suffering. Folks, I want you to know something. A church that suffers together, fellowships together with Christ. Do you think there was any sweet fellowship that these people had together because of their, of their newfound faith and this comfort and encouragement that they had in the body of Christ, you better believe it. And Paul uses this as the motivation, the last one. It says, if there's any bowels and mercies, I don't know if you've ever found that funny. Why would he bring up bowels at a time like this? Um, it's a word that, you know, for the, for the Greek-speaking person, really the, the, the stomach was the seat of emotion. You know, for us, that sounds kind of weird. Ours isn't much different. You know, today in, in the Western world, we talk about the heart. You know, like I look at my wife on Valentine's Day and I say, baby, I love you with all of my heart. And she's not thinking ventricles and blood squirting out, right? No, no, no. She knows what I mean. She thinks this little cutesy Valentine's heart, right? Um, same thing is true. And actually, it's probably a little more accurate that when it's talking about, is there any, is there any tender mercy? Is there any, and I, I you know, I, when you think about it, the emotions are much more attached to your stomach than your heart. Like, have you ever seen something that was so sad to you, it kind of made your stomach turn? Or have you ever had something so exciting that you got butterflies in your belly? That's the idea. You know, when Jesus said, when the Bible says in Matthew chapter 9 that he goes through the cities and the villages and he's, and he, and he's, healing the sick and he's preaching the the good news of the gospel and then i love when it says that jesus it says but when he saw the multitudes i love the way it says it because it's almost like he's so busy helping the next person tapping him on his shoulder to turn and and heal them and it's almost like he doesn't even see it until he looks up and as far as he can see there's just more and more people coming and it says this he was moved with compassion I love that phrase because it's talking about a turning in the stomach when he saw the multitudes coming. You know why? It says because he saw them as a bunch of sheep who didn't have a shepherd. Jesus was moved with compassion. And that's what it's talking about here when it says these, this, these, mercy, this, these bowels and mercies. It's talking about this compassion where you actually are so are so tender-hearted towards other people in the church that it moves you. And he uses this as the motivation for saying, is any of this true? And these people would have all echoed from the, the church in Philippi, you better believe it's true. Then he says this, then you have got to be unified. Verse number two he says, if all of this is true, then fulfill ye my, jo my joy, that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. I think if I was going to put points to this, point number one would be the motivation for unity. But number two would be 
really the essence of unity. What is it? I, I think he says three things here. First of all, he says that you be like-minded. That means um, uh, that, that, that you have a unity of thinking. And if you look at verse number two, it's kind of bookended with both uh, it, it, being like-minded and then of one mind is at the end of the verse. So on both sides of this verse, it talks about having a unity of thinking. Now, what does it mean that a church have a unity of thinking? You all, you all think how? You all think like, you know, you all think like the pastor together? Well, maybe. You all think like the deacons together? I mean, maybe. But ultimately, it would be the pastor and the deacons and the other leadership all thinking, ultimately leading us to think like who together? Like Christ together. Like look at verse number five. It says, let this mind be in you which was in Christ. And that's actually where this text is going. It's take, this text is leading us, it calls this church to unity. It's leading us to the mind of Christ who laid down his life for other people. So that's where this text is leading us. There is a unity of thinking. It's the thinking of Christ together. But then look at what it says. That ye be like-minded, having the same love. Okay, so it's not just a unity of thinking. It's also a unity of love. It's the same love of Christ that's come to you that now, to the rest of the body of Christ, it goes through you. Folks, you want to know how you're supposed to love the other people in the church? The same way Jesus loves you. The same love of Christ, that sacrificial laying down of himself, the same love of Christ that's come to us now is to go through us. There's a unity. This is the essence of unity. There's a unity of thinking. There's a unity of love. And then there's also a unity of mission. When it says here, of one accord, it doesn't mean that we all squeeze into the same Honda together, right? What does it mean? That, that we are all that the church is to, there's to be a unity of mission. Now let me ask you a question. Are you on board with the mission of this church? Have you bought in? And I mean, this is a, this is, this is a tough one because we live in such an individualistic society where this American life has influenced us all far more than we realize. And this American life is screaming at us, you know, that it's really low on commitment. Um, that's why people don't get married today, because it's so much easier just to live with somebody. Then you can find out within the next 10 years whether or not you really like them. Um, so the, the, and and it's, it's just infiltrated our entire society, and people are so low on commitment, and it works its way into the culture of the church. And folks, if we're not careful, you know what happens? Um, I mean, you can look at the Barna reports, you can, you can look at the statistics, and I, I just, I'm in churches all the time. I really believe in a lot of churches. I really think it's true. They say that in the average church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. You know what that means? That means that 20% of the people in the average church have bought into the truth that the church is a place where you give yourself, you get on board, and you give not just your money, you, you give yourself. You give your talents, your abilities. You know, I mean, you, you have a mind that, 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 that is so creative and so incredible when it comes to finances or, or your, your hands. You can do anything with your hands. And why do you have these gifts? Well, actually, God gave you these gifts. And in giving these gifts to you, he was actually not just giving them to you. He was giving them to his church. And so God gives us these gifts so that you can be on board with the mission of the church and give yourself. Folks, those numbers mean this. 
that in the average church, 20, only 20% of the people have really bought into the mission of the church. And that actually 80% of the people in the average church have actually bought into the lie that the church is just another thing to be consumed in this consumer-driven society. It's just another place where you sit and you take. And I mean, I, 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 I just want you to know, I know that what I'm saying is a little bit taboo, and I also know that what I'm saying is a little bit punchy. I'm an evangelist. Don't I get a little pass on a little punch? Come on now. I mean, I got a, I got a straight-up question. If that is true of this church, I don't know if it is. I actually hope that it's not, and I would actually think that it's not. But if it was true that 80% of this church didn't get what it really meant to be bought into the mission, and only 20% did, what, what percentage would you be in? Would you, be bought, would you be a part of the percentage of this church that was bought in to the mission? Or would you be part of the percentage of the church that just said, oh, no, this church is a great part of life. I mean, but it's another place where I come and sit and get. Folks, there is a unity of thinking. There is a unity of love. There is a unity of mission. Are you, have you bought in to the mission of the church? We are being called to be unified. What he does next, and I'll just do this real quick and we'll, and we'll finish up. He, um, he actually gives some unity killers and some unity builders. And let's just look at them real fast. Verse number three, we know these verses, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. I think there's three unity killers that I want to look at right here real fast. The first one is strife. The word strife, we find uh, Paul uses this word several times. We find James using this word. It's actually a word, uniquely enough, that's kind of been pulled from kind of like the political arena of the day. I think, I think we get this word. It's, the, it's a word that's talking about the jockeying for position among people who are in rivalry with each other, especially in the political realm. Don't we see this all the time? I, uh, I mean, it's like, it's, it's the negative campaigning. It's the tearing one guy down so that you can make yourself look a little bit better. I don't care which side you're on. I, 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 get, I get sick and tired of it. Um, it's the net, it, it's strife. Um, it shows up this way. It shows up in, in, in a church setting. It's destructive. It kills the unity. Strife is the comparison. It, it's amazing how much comparison goes on sometimes in a church setting. We compare our abilities. We compare our affluence. We compare our acceptance. We compare our approval. We compare. And next thing you know, we're way too polished to let it come out. We just hold on to it inside. We have strife in our heart towards a brother or a sister. And maybe, maybe it does start leaking its way out in gossip. I mean, gossip is so destructive. You know what gossip is? It's so gross. Are we really capable of something like this? Yeah, we really are. Gossip is, is, when, you, is when you actually use another person like a ladder, and you actually, you actually step on them, and you smash them down with your words, really at the end of the day to get yourself a little higher. It destroys the unity in a church. 
you know, a, 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 a lack of forgiveness, and then it starts to feed its way over into bitterness. In the midst of a community of people who are called to love each other, uh, this is all how strife works its way out. And it, it hurts the unity of a church. Um, uh, I just think about the way that, that we communicate and grumble and complain and manipulate behind the scenes when we don't like the way things are going. It's all strife. I think envy. You know what envy is? Envy is so gross and so dirty and it's on the inside. But envy is that little, that little turn in the stomach when you hear something good about somebody else. I mean, I mean, so, 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 I mean, no matter how little it is, you find out that they got a new job. It's a better paying job, better paying than your job. And on the outside, since we're so polished, we say, oh, praise the Lord, brother. <laughs> on the inside, we go, mm. I mean, I mean, you found out they got a new car. It's nicer than your car. Oh, praise the Lord, sister. <laughs> mm. Or, or, or you, just, you just find out that they get to see their grandbabies again. You had not seen your grandbabies in six months. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> mm. Folks, what does the Bible say? The Bible actually says that we are to rejoice with those who are rejoicing. And we're to weep with those who are weeping. You see, there's a flip side that's actually just as nasty. Are we actually capable of the flip side? That's that little smirk in the heart when you hear something bad about somebody else. You find out their kids are struggling. I mean, your kids are struggling. So you actually derive just a little bit of a... Are we actually capable of something so gross? Yeah, we are. It's called envy. It's strife. It destroys the unity of the church. You say, Aaron, why are you talking? Do you you like sense this here? Folks, I don't sense it at all. I mean, as I've been around here and I'm watching everybody work and work together and do all the stuff we've been doing, all the laughing we've been doing, all the, the great time we've had ever since Sunday, I mean, just I haven't sensed one bit of strife. But I know how sweet I can be when I come to church and what a booger I can be in my trailer. I mean, I'm just saying if the shoe fits, wear it. You got any strife in your heart towards somebody else in this church? Folks, it destroys the unity in a body. The next one, vainglory. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. Vainglory, just plain and simple. It's just, it's doing things for recognition. Your heart of serving is actually so that people notice. I mean, there's a lot of cooking that goes on. Um, There's a lot of serving that takes place. There's a lot of people doing a lot of giving. Vainglory shows up when nobody recognizes what you did. Folks, all of a sudden, our motives are laid bare. Why do I do what I do? Am I really just doing it for the praise of men? Do I really want to do it out of love and service to the Lord and other people? Vainglory. He says, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory. And then listen to what he says in the next verse. He says, look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Here's the third unity killer. It's this infatuation and this American life feeds it, I'm telling you, of just this infatuation with your own stuff, my own things, my life, me. And I think it's destroying churches all around us because Our lives are so caught up in us and our own stuff 
and our own hobbies and church. This really goes hand in hand with what I was saying a few moments ago. Church is a great part of life, but it's just, ah, it's just this little, you know, it's this little part of life that I tag on. Folks, I'm telling you, if you read the New Testament, you read the book of Acts, you want to know what place the church is to have in our life? Center stage. Not to, but what about my kids? Not not to the exclusion of your kids, to the inclusion of your kids. The church is to be the center of the family's life. Well, I mean, i got to work my job. Well, I know, I know, I know. And you're going to spend more time at your job than you do at, at church. But folks, we live our lives, we work our jobs, we make our money, we pay our bills, we raise our kids so that we can serve God and His church. I'm telling you, we don't understand. I'm telling you, in our culture, we don't understand the importance that the church is to play in the life of the believer. Um, Unity killers, strife, vainglory, and infatuation with your own stuff, your own life. Um, but then here, here's, here's, the la- here's, here's where I want us to see now, just real fast. What are the unity builders? The unity builders is, there, is a lowliness of mind. What does it mean? It's a humility of mind. It's not exalting yourself above what you, what you should. A lowliness of mind. I heard this definition of, it's not that, you know, humility is not putting yourself down. It's not thinking low of yourself. It's actually being so consumed with others that you actually forget about yourself. When have we ever mastered that one? When have you and I ever been so consumed with other people that we just totally forgot about ourselves? Folks, that's Christ-likeness. And that's the goal that we should be striving for. And we're going to fail. But folks, what a goal for me and you in the life of the church to be that consumed with other people. Low-minded when it comes to ourselves. Um, Humility, verse 3, let nothing be done through strife of vainglory, but in lowliness of mind or in humility of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. I mean, what is laid out for here is the ideal. But remember where he's going. He's getting ready to tell us the mind of Christ. That is the ideal. And listen to what he says. Esteem others better than yourself. It's like, come on, Paul. He doesn't even say esteem others as much as you esteem yourself. He said to esteem other people more than you have a higher estimation of other people than you do yourself. How well do we do with that one? I fail. But folks, that's the goal for us to love each other that much, to give ourselves to each other that much. He said, look, not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. It's just a a mindset where you are loving, I mean giving, serving, weeping with those who are weeping, rejoicing with those who are rejoicing, the people in your body, in your local body, the church. You know, we were just uh, doing a a book study. We do a book study every semester together. Sometimes we'll do a book of the Bible. Um, Right now we're doing uh, uh, reading a book um, called How Do People Change by, by Paul Tripp, and we're going through this book, and 
And this past, this last chapter was talking about how that change, here was the title, the, the chapter title, Change is a Community Project. And, and it really just is laying out the picture of the body. I mean, folks, the picture of a body is the church. This is what God gave us. Um, I don't know about you, but I mean, my body, I, I kind of tend to take care of my body. You know, like uh, uh, back, um, you, you folks know that I, I cranked my head open back about two weeks ago. And it was just laid open, <sighs> cracked my skull, thought that I'd cracked my spine. And um, anyway, just uh, all, all, all kinds of stuff. My entire attention came to the aid of my head because it was bleeding everywhere, right? Folks, that's what the body does. The body comes to the aid. It's concerned about being healthy. My hands help my head. Back a, a few weeks ago, I was out hunting, and I don't know what I did to my ankle, but I come out of the woods, and my ankle was the size of, a, of one of those balloons up there. Not that one. We don't know what happened to that balloon. We were laughing earlier, but my, my, my foot was just like, and my entire body comes to the aid of my foot. Why, do, why does my body do that? Because my body is made that way. Paul uses that picture of this group right here, a body. Do you know who's hurting in this room? Has it crossed your mind to come to the aid? Do you love what they love just because they love it? And you want to encourage them? What? The body. A family. Folks, can I just tell you something? I mean, I'll just be straight up. I, I, what God has called me to do is hard. I'll be real honest. Now, on one side, I get the wonderful privilege, wonderful privilege of spending time with people of, 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 of the church. And I mean the church universal. I mean the all around the country. I can, be, I can be in China, and I can run into my brother right here. And guess what? We're not a part of the same local body, but we're a part of the body of Christ. And so we, have, we, have, we can have great fellowship. I get to spend time with people who are believers, who are a part of Christ's church all over the place. And it is so sweet. I mean, I love. But did you know that I actually have a local body that I'm a part of. It's in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina. And can I tell you something? I come to a church like this, have a family fun night like this. I watch people fellowship on a men's night, playing some cornhole, listen to the ladies giggling at their night, playing some luau music. Um, I, I, I watch a church fellowship, and this is great. I love jumping in, and for a week, you folks are so sweet. You let me be a part of what you got going on around here. But you know what? You're actually not my home people. Do you know that? I miss Charles Thomas, Jeremy Key, Christian Collins. You know who those people are? They're actually my people. They go to a church up in Rocky Mountain, North Carolina called Westview Baptist Church. And I don't get to spend a lot of time with them. Can I, you, you know, there's a little bit of a, of a, I think, a righteous jealousy when I come into a church like this. And you know what it makes me want to say? It makes me want to say, folks, don't squander what you have here. You love these people in this room. And give yourself to them. May this church be unified. Let's have our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I don't know how you needed this tonight. We like to do a family fun night. 
And it's about the church family and the importance of the church family. And I do think, folks, and I want you to really, really hear me, I really believe that this American life conspires against what the church is supposed to be. And I want to challenge you tonight, and I've tried to challenge you, and I want to ask you right now, what is your attitude towards this church? And I'm not talking about this building. I'm talking about this group of people. Are you committed? Are you in? Are you on board? And maybe you're here tonight and you're visiting. Do you love the people of your church body? Um, I don't really know how you need this. I, I, but I think it'd be great in just a minute. I'm going to have Steph play and, and just give you a chance to, to just pray and really think through and pray, God, what is my attitude towards the church? Am I really committed? Am I really on board? Have I really given myself and my abilities and my gifts to you and your church? I would say this. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a part of Christ's church. You're actually not a believer. You're not saved. And maybe that's you tonight. You're here tonight, but you're just simply not a part of the church. And maybe God's opening your eyes to see that even tonight. My prayer would be for you that you would be, um, and this isn't unkind, but that you would almost be like an, an, that you'd realize that you're kind of like an orphan. Standing on the outside, looking in to a little family reunion. And that there would be something in your heart tonight that would long to be a part of what I'm talking about. A church. A spiritual family. And my friend, I want you to know something. You can come on in. Would you be saved? Would you turn to Christ? Would you be saved by His grace? Would you be made a part of His church? Would you please turn to Christ? If you were here without Him. Would you please be saved? I beg of you. You know, you could talk to me. I'd love to talk to you. Obviously, pastor would love to talk to you or maybe someone else that you know. If you were here without Christ, would you please turn to him? Would you be saved? My friend, believers, can we just take a minute? I'd love to have Steph just play. Would you just take a minute tonight and would you just before God, would you pray? Ask him to help you assess your attitude towards the church. Do you have strife in your heart towards somebody in particular that you're not forgiving? Do you have envy in your heart? Nobody knows but you and God. But towards somebody in this church, it'll hurt the unity. Just ask God to help you take inventory and really help you see what your attitude is towards the church. We'll go through one more time and then I'll be done.
Father, would you please help us? Lord, you have called us out of darkness. And you have placed us into something that is incredible. You have placed us on one side into the kingdom of your dear son. But then you let us be a part of something that is just incredible. Lord, these little local expressions of, your, of what you're doing on a grand scale that we're all going to be a part of someday. But Lord, you call us together in these little groups of people and we give ourselves to each other. Lord, it's called the church. Lord, may we be bought in with everything that we've got. May we love what you love. May we give ourselves to what you've given yourself to. Lord, Christ gave himself for the church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.